Eclesiastés 9, 1 al 12. A todo esto me dediqué de lleno y comprobé que los justos y los sabios, junto con, los, con sus obras, están en las manos de Dios. Pero ninguno sabe del amor ni del odio, aunque los tenga ante sus ojos. Para todos hay un mismo final, para el justo y el injusto, para el bueno y el malo, para el puro y el impuro, para el que ofrece sacrificios y para que el que no los ofrece, tanto para el bueno como para el pecador, tanto para el que hace juramentos como para el que no los hace por temor. Hay un mal en todo lo que se hace bajo el sol. Todos tienen un mismo final. Además, el corazón del hombre rebosa de maldad. La necesidad está en su corazón toda su vida y después de eso la muerte. ¿Por quién, pues, decidirse? Entre todos los vivos hay esperanza, pues vale más perro vivo que león muerto. Porque los vivos saben que han de morir, pero los muertos no saben nada. Tampoco tiene recompensa, pues su memoria cae en el olvido. Sus amores, odios y pasiones llegan a su fin. Nunca más vuelven a tener parte en nada de lo que se hace bajo el sol. Anda, come tu pan con gozo. Bebe tu vino con corazón alegre, que Dios ya se ha agradado de tus obras. Que sean siempre tus vestidos blancos y que no falte nunca el perfume en tu cabeza. Goza de la vida con la mujer amada cada día de la vida de vanidad que Dios te ha dado bajo el sol. Cada uno de tus días de vanidad. Esta es la recompensa de tu vida y de los afanes que pasas bajo el sol. Y todo lo que te venga a la mano, hazlo con todo empeño. Porque en los dominios de la muerte, a donde te diriges, no hay trabajo, ni planes, ni conocimiento, ni sabiduría. Me fijé de nuevo que bajo el sol, la carrera no la ganan los más velozos, ni ganan la batalla los más valientes. Tampoco los sabios tienen que comer, ni los inteligentes abundan en dinero, ni los instruidos gozan de simpatía sino que a todos les llegan buenos y malos tiempos. Vi además que nadie sabe cuándo le llegará su hora. Así como los peces caen en la red fatal y las aves caen en la trampa, también los hombres se ven atrapados por una desgracia que de pronto les sobreviene. And I'll read in English, Ecclesiastes 9, 1-12. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there's madness in their hearts while they live. And afterward, they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than the dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. 
for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love, all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. This is the word of the Lord. I think we can applaud that. That was phenomenal. Well done standing for that long, y'all. I know you're not used to that. Good morning. My name's Dan, and I'm one of the lead pastors as well here at Neighbors Church, and I have had three cups of coffee and three bowls of sugar cereal. So I feel like an eight-year-old going to Disneyland. Whatever happens next is the sugar's fault. All right? Let's, uh, let's pray. I hope everybody got a good bowl of cereal. There's still some frosted flakes left out there for a little fellowship afterwards. Fun in the San Diego sun. It's really good to see everybody this morning. Father, as we now conclude uh, in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, these last few weeks, Koheleth, the teacher, the gatherer, the assembler, he begins to repeat himself. His somewhat cynical and jaded view of life, like a skipping record, he just cannot get out of the rut of seeing the ridiculousness of life under the sun. This morning, as I've been praying all morning in such earnest passion and hope, set free the souls, Lord, who come plagued this day with anxiety and burdened with shame and depression, This age in which we find ourselves, Lord, is heavy laden, burdens upon the souls as we've abandoned God, forgotten our way, lost who we are in creation. And it's crushing our culture, and it's crushing these humans. Set free this day by your spirit through the cynical and jaded thoughts of this professor, this philosopher of antiquity. Set free, most importantly and most powerfully, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that God has embodied himself among us, endured what we endure yet without sin, was crucified in our place, raised to life everlasting, that we too in him would be raised to life everlasting, life abundant here and now, eternal life here and now, joy, peace, and hope, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Do this work in Jesus' name. We all ask in Jesus' name, amen. As I prayed, Ours really is an age of rampant and crippling uh, anxiety. What psych professor Gene Twenge out there at SDSU says is an epidemic of anguish, particularly amongst you younger kids, Gen Z, my kid's age. Now, there's a complex set of factors that contribute to the modern heart rate being as elevated as it is, as often as it is. There's wars, rumors of wars, plague, political upheaval, social strife, fiscal uncertainty, global insecurities, You know, it's all the stuff that Jesus promised would be the case. It's kind of par for the course. It's what he said would be happening in the days in which we find ourselves. At the root of our anxiety collectively is what German sociologist Helmut Rusa calls 
the uncontrollability of the world. He writes, the driving cultural force of that form of life that we call modern is the idea or the hope and desire that we can make the world controllable. Rosa argues that modern societies have declared war on this uncontrollable world in which we find ourselves. He writes further, for late modern human beings, the world has simply become a point of aggression. Everything that appears to us must be known, mastered, conquered, and made useful. Now, I concur with Rosa's proposal. The world for me, the world for you, the world for us collectively as late Western modern humans has indeed become a point of aggression for us. Think about our rhetoric. We talk about killing it in life, crushing goals, murdering workouts. We go to war in the morning with our calendars and fight all day long with our overcrowded schedules. We war with the internal narratives and the emotional wounds and the fears that we can barely put our finger on all day long. We war with the expectations of others and the expectations that we find brewing within ourselves. We war against a future that we cannot see and against a past that we cannot change. Modernity has also outfitted us with state-of-the-art weaponry with which we go to war every single day. We've got little supercomputers in our pockets that give us instant access to information and global communication. Our calendars automate with dings and buzzes where we're to be on the battlefield every single second. We've got our notes apps, reminders apps, productivity apps, life optimization hacks, and time-saving tricks. We have our war generals as well. Successful authors teach us to set our goals, manifest our dreams, adopt the seven habits of highly effective people in the hopes that these atomic habits will neutralize the enemies of laziness and lack of productivity and ruts. If you're like me, you listen to podcasts at two times speed. I don't know why I do that. I know I don't retain a lot of it, but I get enough of it that I need. So you listen to your podcast at two times speed, and then you put into practice anything and everything that Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, and Andrew Huberman are doing in their daily protocols right now. Shua Fonley in the notes calls these guys the holy bro, bruh, dude, pseudoscience, mansplain trinity. <laughs> Even while he and I are talking about how to optimize our dopamine systems. <laughs> the point being, we plan, and then we make more plans, and then we plan about how to plan for the next set of plans. Then we go and we inform our friends and our family, and sometimes we'll even inform our God in what we call prayer. God, this is the plan. But as the old military maxim and the SEALs have said for so long, no plan survives contact with the enemy. And so despite our technological weaponry and our intelligence and our effort, our mentors and our guides, the enemy of this uncontrollable world, shreds our plans to pieces, basically from the moment that we step out of bed. And therein lies a primary contributor to this incessant anxiety that we are all wrestling with day in, day out. We wake up and we are at war to control a world that cannot be controlled. Which brings us to the assembler, the teacher, the philosopher. His ancient Hebrew name was Koheleth, and he's the primary voice throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Koheleth was an old, grizzled war vet, and he was waving the white flag. He was getting off the battlefield. He'd set out to find out what life was all about, and for him, this war was over, and he was done fighting. Koheleth probably was one of the most accomplished humans to have ever lived on this planet. On all accounts, when we looked at Koheleth's Instagram, we would say, that guy has tamed the wilds. He concluded, though, despite his successes, 
that life is unpredictable. No human, no matter how planned out, will ever control the world. So he says, I reflected on this and I concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do, it's all in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. So Koheleth here observed five categories, each of which one of you will fit into one of these categories at different spaces in your life. Five categories of a contrasting way of living, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, the sacrificial and non-sacrificial, those who vow and those who don't vow. What you see in each of these five categories of contrast, you see the gamut of how we humans try to take control of our world. Let's start with the righteous and the clean and the good. The righteous, good, clean, sacrificial, and committed, those who vow, they come to believe that obedience to God will guarantee that your plans are blessed. My obedience to God means that my dreams will be fulfilled by him. The obedient, the good, the clean, the righteous, the vowed, the committed, the sacrificial. We fall into that trap of sort of using our righteous works as bartering items with God. We come and we negotiate and we purchase the good life and our dream fulfillment from him. We say, I hold you hostage with my holiness, with my works. Do as I will because I've worked so righteously with so much effort. I've been righteous. I've been good. I've kept clean. I've sacrificed. I've done a lot for God. I've even committed my entire life, vowing my all to him. Now he owes me this and this and this and this. Is this only me? Am I the only one that's done this with the king? <laughs> And maybe, if like me, you were sort of trained this way by the Western Evangelical Church. In a not-so-subtle way, many pulpits have preached, do this and God will do this, do that and God won't do that. Koheleth said, it's a sham. Gigs up. It's a bill of goods. I'm not picking up what you're putting down. This is what Koheleth was saying here. He was saying, I see right through this because from my perspective, any righteous effort and all righteous works are of no value in negotiating with this God. God, without rhyme or reason, seems to love some and hate others, regardless of their righteous endeavors. Then he contrasts that with another way in which we humans try to take control of our world. The wicked, the bad, the unclean, the non-sacrificial, and those who don't vow. Those who don't vow, that's Hebrew, for, that's Hebrew shorthand for those who refuse to commit to God. The wicked... The unclean, the non-sacrificial, those who won't commit to God, let's just call that 95% of San Diegan culture, they have said, I'm done bartering with God with my obedience. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to live life my way. I'm going to take life into my own hands. I'm going to control my life and live as I see fit. And there too, Koheleth said, you want to know what awaits those who live wickedly, who disregard God, who refuse to commit to him? Blessings and beatings. Regardless of one's disregard for God, Kohala said, it doesn't matter. Righteous or wicked, clean or unclean. It's no rhyme, no reason. I've seen something, verse 11, else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. And so for Kohala, the assembler, the teacher, the cynic philosopher, 
he was saying no one with certainty is ever going to be able to map out and say, here's how I win the race. Here's how I win the battle. You can't forever be certain that you'll always be wealthy and healthy, well-fed and full. It's all time and chance. It's like life is just a casino that we're walking through. And some of us roll sevens, and a lot of us roll snake eyes a lot of the time. And the real rub for Koheleth, what got under the man's skin the most, was death. The inevitability and the eminence of death, the inescapability of the end of this casino life that we're all living. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun, verse 3. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Moreover, skipping down to verse 12, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. So for Koheleth, and for you and I, really, the only certainty that we can look forward to is death. Death will have its way with the righteous and the wicked equally. Humans... We humans, we madly go about our days negotiating with God the good life by our obedience or taking matters into our own hands and living wickedly. And then guess what? We all die. Every single one of us. Now, this theme, memento mori, remembrance of death, this theme saturates the book of Ecclesiastes and it justifiably makes us uncomfortable Part of the madness that Koheleth refused to give into was to live his life without death at the foreground of his life. This inevitability of death, it sobered him. And though it terribly frustrated him, his remembrance of death, memento mori as the ancients called it, it enhanced his urgency to live life fully before it ended. Verses four through six of nine. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they'll die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Now, this Imagery of dogs and lions dead and alive. The ancient Hebrews did not keep dogs as pets. In contrast to our society that has elevated dogs to the place of human family members in some households. Now listen, I am not judging that. I'm one of those people actually. I'm actually the worst. Little sidebar here, my wife and I currently cannot have a dog in our rental that we're in right now. It's the bane of my existence and our family's existence. If we could, though, that little dog would be coddled and crowned ruler of our home. And this is why. Lex and I have this dream of owning uh, a, a very prestigious breed. It's called a Wheaton Terrier. Don't do this right now, but after the sermon, look up Wheaton Terrier puppies, and you'll know why we want a Wheaton Terrier. And we want to name him, I want to name this little puppy, I want to get a little male, and I want to name him Ignatius Francis, after my favorite mystics. And then what I would do is every single day, I would wake up and I would say, Iggy Frank, come on, buddy, let's go for a walk. And me and Iggy Frank would go for a walk, and I would feed him treats, and we would cuddle on the couch, and I might even get him a little stroller that I'd walk around South Park in with, and we'd... Okay, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> Iggy Frank, you know you love that. That was cute. That's cute. The Hebrews thought dogs were disgusting, unlike me. The Hebrews thought of dogs as scavengers and pariahs of the streets. And so Koheleth's sense of death made him realize, and he compares this to dogs and lions, even if you feel like right now you're living like a dog in the Hebrew sense, you're just kind of scavenging through the streets of life and suffering, 
Or maybe you feel like you're being treated like royalty at this current moment. At least you're alive, Koheleth would say. It's better to be alive, even as a dog, than a dead lion. It's better to be able to experience the spectrum of suffering and the delights of life than to be dead and experiencing nothing. And it was actually, from my own life, this way of thinking that was part of my journey to true mental health healing in a very, very pointed and acute and and clinical sense. There was a failed suicide attempt in my life just months before I actually committed my life to Jesus. After my conversion and becoming a quote-unquote Christian, which even at that time I had no clue what that meant, all I knew is Jesus had saved me and I knew that I was going to live. And to this day, 25 years later, after that suicide attempt, I still find myself overwhelmed with gratitude to just have air in my lungs. I'm not dead. I'm alive. But after my salvation, the, the paranoia... Uh, uh, the, drugs just, the drugs just took me, and I could not get out of it. The, the drugs spun me for a loop. And my mind had just been shattered. And so <clears throat> I spent a long time, probably about three years, coming out of uh, what the clinicians call the drug-induced psychosis. And in those years, I remember in prayer telling the Lord, if I have to live for the rest of my life with this paranoia and these mental issues, if I have to live with this type of suffering, even if I had to live this way with this pain and this hurt and this confusion for a trillion years, but death, my death, will end it, then for you, Jesus, I'm willing to live with this sadness, this depression, this fear, this paranoia for the rest of my life until it's done. And this began to shift. My embracing of suffering as part of my life, embracing suffering and pain as just part of the way that my life was going to be, embracing suffering and pain as being alive. It is a tremendous pain and suffering, not because we love it, not because we want it, but because it is part of being alive, like dogs scavenging our way through the casino that is called human existence. When we embrace it rather than resisting it, we just grab it, hold on to it, and take it into ourselves. It's like we do this judo move on suffering and sadness. It's like we embrace it, and all of its force just takes us where it needs to, and then we toss it. And it doesn't go away, but it's not managing us anymore. We are managing it. It loses a little bit of its power over us. And it's not all sadness and gloom, folks. (laughs) We live in San Diego, California. It's really nice here. It's beautiful. I'm probably going to go surfing this afternoon. Life is not that bad. We put our dogs in strollers. Give me a break. We're fine. Death clarifies the call to not miss all the goodness of life. Five times in this book, Koheleth instructs his readers to absolutely just grab life and go for it. Old Testament scholar Tremper Longman calls these sections that we're in the carpe diem passages, the seize the day sections. Remember carpe diem, seize the day. In these passages, Koheleth is pleading with his readers. Life is short. It's unpredictable. And so we need to take advantage of every opportunity that comes our way. Verses 7 through 9, here's what he says. Go, eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy the life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. All your meaningless days. This guy's hard to meditate in week in and week out. He's such a bummer. For this is your lot in life in your toilsome labor under the sun. Okay. Without a doubt, chapter 9 and some of these last chapters as we get out of this guy's head are some of his most pessimistic thoughts to this point in the book. 
but his pessimism really serves as a cold splash of water for you and I this morning to awaken us out of the dreams of pseudo-control that we are all exerting over this universe. Koheleth comes in and he says, wake up. You are not in control. You have no control over this world. This war that you're waging, you lose it every single morning. The minute you wake up and establish your plans before God, they're in a dumpster fire. And so in a counterintuitive way, Koheleth's frustrated views are a form of surrender. At least the man saw and lived into reality and out of reality as an act of surrender. And this is where we get to Jesus. Jesus invites you and I to this level of surrender, minus the cynicism. Cynicism should, if it's creeping up in your heart, ultimately be alleviated by absolute surrender. Part of Jesus' perfections, when we say Jesus was a perfect human, part of what made him perfect was the fact that he lived. He didn't just go to the Father with his plans and say, now bless this mess. He said, Father, what are your plans today? I'm going to do that perfectly. That's our role model. That's our goal for life, to live perfectly as Jesus lived, not according to our plans, but according to the Father's plans. I have learned that the process of transformation in becoming like Jesus, living my life as a perfect human like him, that process of transformation is nothing more than a very long series of consistent surrenders to life as it is rather than life as I would want it to be. This is key. This is key for your personal development. None of us are where we want to be this morning. All of us want to grow. All of us want to transform. And if you want to transform, and you actually want to experience and live our two postures for the year, rest as a way of being, resilience as a way of doing, that sounds so nice, doesn't it? It requires this surrender of our reality to life as it is. Only when we begin to surrender to life as it is can our souls come to rest and we quit exerting pseudo-control in a war that we cannot win. We wave the white flag. Resisting, resisting what we cannot control, this is what Koheleth calls madness. Late Western modern culture with all of our technology and our gurus and our podcasts and our successful authors is mad. We are insane. We do not live in reality. God will never line up our lives according to the level of anxiety that we exert to persuade him to do so. He will not. He loves us too much. And so resilience is not born by gritting our teeth and tightening up our bootstraps. Resilience is born by receiving and surrendering to God's power and guidance and surrendering wholly, more completely, layer by layer, to his plan as it unfolds in the midst of difficulties in life, period. Just knowing that our plans are probably going to be in a dumpster fire within an hour of implementing them, that's kind of comforting to me in the most counterintuitive way. Because as a Christian... When our plans for control are going up in flames, this is where faith becomes faith. Trust becomes truly trusting, not just something we say. And life and relationship with our God becomes vibrant and alive. When the plans go up in a dumpster fire, this is where that great mystery of choosing to trust meets the power of the Holy Spirit in God's plan for our lives. Now, just another 10 minutes or so here. I want to take us to the communion table this morning by establishing three postures. We have the two primary postures for all of 2023. Rest is a way of beaming. Sabbath is our anchor practice for that. Koheleth is telling us surrender to life as it is. Resilience is our way of doing. 
We rest in God's plan. We pray for God's plan. We fulfill God's plan just like Jesus did. Now, three sub-postures to that that actually sort of embody that in our day-in, day-out life. Receiving versus reacting. This is huge. And this was huge for me. It's been huge for me for about 10 years now. Receiving life versus reacting to life. With great effort and intensity and focus, as much as we attempt, as much effort as we put into controlling the universe, we should put equally as much effort stopping that process and learning to live life on its own terms. Living life on its own terms. What that means is it recognizes that our life will never be devoid of of anxiety and fear and uncertainty. It just won't. It's a broken world. So we recognize that, and we recognize that the Christian lives joyfully in the midst of pain and problems. When we start to live life on its own terms, we stop reacting to it like it's surprise. Where did this suffering come from? Oh my gosh. We receive it as it is, and we begin receiving everything within our life as it is. When we are merely reacting to life, just barreling through life on this unchecked, inertia, this runaway train of reaction and pseudo-control of our universe. When we are reacting to life, we live unexamined lives. We, we, unfold, we, we live out unplanned behaviors based on reaction to our circumstances. In any given situation, we're like a pinball in a pinball machine. React, 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 react. We never slow down. We never cease. We never stop. We never rest. We're just reacting, 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 amplifying, intensifying. When we only react to life, we are acting and reacting with a lack of self-awareness, a lack of awareness of others around us that God has given to us. And most dangerously, the reactive life is unaware of God. And I have myself, and for two and a half decades now, watched Christians just tag Jesus' name onto their reactivity. I'm reacting, I'm reacting in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, I'm reacting, I'm reacting in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Never actually slowing down, like, what's going on in my soul? Who has surrounded me, and where is my God? May I sit for longer than five minutes before I rush off to put out the dumpster fire and pray and wait and truly trust and exert faith in this mysterious choice to believe where the Holy Spirit meets us. Reacting to life as well, and reacting to circumstances, it always paints us as the victim of powers over which we have no recourse. (laughs) We either become self-indulgent, I deserve this, or self-pitiful, woe is me, nothing will ever change. Circumstances, other humans, and life in general becomes the masters of our existence. Now, when you change your posture to receiving life, Receiving life is almost the exact opposite posture of reacting to life. And so, when you begin to live life in a received way, you're slowed down. You're very careful with your behavior. You're introspective. You're thoughtful. The circumstance has stirred in you a lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. That's an invitation to slow down, to think more deeply, to get under the layers of why. Why? At least five whys, if not seven whys, asking why am I so anxious? Why am I anxious about that? Why am I anxious about that? In a prayer time, in the morning, one, two, three, four, five layers in, six, seven, eight, nine, ten layers in, slowly the soul begins to reveal itself, and you get to the very guts of what anxiety is. And at the center of that, you'll find yourself sitting on a throne with your little scepter and your little plastic crown saying, I own the universe. And that's where repentance actually happens. And that's where rest actually comes from. We examine carefully our behavior with the Spirit, empowered self-control there in the spirit and prayer. And then we go to the scriptures and we get guidance. And then we slow down enough to go to community group on Tuesday night and say, here's what I'm terrified about. Here's what the Lord's showing me about myself. Could we do some listening prayer tonight? 
I need to just hear from the family of God for my own soul tonight. And we let the family of God bear burdens alongside us in authenticity and transparency, which is also another way that we try to control. Just keep it all hidden, everything's fine, paste a smile on our face, and off we go while we're suffering so deeply on the inside. Receiving all things in life, it creates this intensive self-awareness. It opens us up to our hearts and our motives and our awareness of others and our need for them. And most importantly, a real relationship full of awareness of God in the midst of it all. The God who himself entered our human experience and understands the difficulties of this place, but still lived his Father's plan perfectly for you and calls you to know less. When we receive life, and whatever life throws at you this week, we aren't self-indulgent, I deserve because life. We aren't self-pitiful, woe is me because of life. We aren't oppressed victims as Christians. We are aware of our God, and we are aware of others, and we are aware of transformation that's happening in our hearts, and we are actually humble champions, humble victors, St. Paul would call us, through God's power and guidance in the midst of all of that. The circumstances, your circumstances, they're not going to change. Your plans are probably going to be in a dumpster fire this week, and so our process is prayerful and curious and open to whatever God is doing in our souls through it all. Everybody got that? Receive versus react. Number two, Kohala says, live life fully under the sun. Live life fully under the sun. Remember that statement, life under the sun? That's Kohala's shorthand for the life that we live until we die. So the life that we can see and measure and experience with our five senses. We really don't need to develop this life under the sun point very much further. Koheleth goes over and over it again and again in the book. The only the only appropriate response to the certainty of death and the randomness that some of you this week are going to roll sevens and some of you are going to roll snake eyes in the casino of life, the only response to that is to enjoy the life you've been given this week as much as you possibly can. In our teaching text for the morning, I won't read it again, Koheleth highlights feasting in verse 7, uh, fresh clothes and oil upon one's head in verse 8, the love of family in verse 9. Now, he's making his points in sort of a very near Eastern way with clothing and oil on the head, which just doesn't do it for us. We're like, what? What does that even mean? What he's saying is, this week, allow the creature comforts of life in San Diego and the sun tax that we pay to live in this climate, in this place that we are. Allow it to add fullness to life. Don't miss how great it is to put on that trashy pair of super comfy sweats that are just tattered and so gross, but you can't get rid of them because they're so good. Fresh clothing. <laughs> Kind of. Don't, don't miss how great it feels after a day of getting home from work and then you just take a hot shower, fresh oil on your head. Don't miss how delicious that popcorn is and that dark chocolate peanut butter cup feasting as you lay next to your wife watching some new Amazon series. Don't miss it. Don't miss these little creature comforts. There's a, you realize even today there's going to be a million of them offered to you? A million of them. Gosh, if you could just take time and look at the color of the person's eyes that you love. Do you know what a gift that is? Just last night, I'm stuck in this guy's head. I'm thinking about my death. I just grab my wife's wrist and hand, and I just start kissing her, her wrist here, and I'm just like... I know this is going to end, and I don't want to miss this. My son walks in this morning, I'm able to give him a hug. You know, I don't want to miss this. He used to be so little, now he's so big. <laughs> it's gone. It's, but it's a million of those. And if we're just reacting to life, pinballing our way through, you miss the hugs, you miss the kisses, you miss the popcorn, 
you miss the incredible potency of peanut butter and chocolate in a bowl of cereal <laughs> with milk and a smile on a friend's face. You miss it, you miss it. And Kohala says, don't miss this. Is that accomplishing anything? Absolutely not, at least not in the Western modern sense of productivity, which is what we're all driven by. But it is living fully in the midst of plans as they go up in flames. And every single act of surrender and rest, it takes in the sweetness of life. It is a spiritual act of defiance against this sort of cultural and ethereal force that is always attempting to rob us of any life. Whether you're a dog or a lion this morning, I don't care. Everything is trying to rob you of the good life. Living fully under the sun concedes the fact that we don't have control, so there's good times to be had, so have them. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, we're almost done. Living under the sun does not mean ceasing all planning, laboring, strategizing, and working hard. Uh, there is a balance. Life is not just grimy sweats and popcorn and binge-watching Netflix. That's not living either, although that may, it, it, it is nice life for a while. I'm sure it's really nice, but it's not. It's not. Whatever your hand finds to do, verse 10 Kohala says, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. So the art of living life under the sun is to navigate the tensions of planning and preparing, knowing that you can't control for all of it, but continuing to work hard and joyfully with what's in front of you. Whatever comes, don't give up. Receive life on its own terms. Learn from it. Keep planning. Keep working hard while trusting God in the midst of it all. And then finally, live life after the sun. Live life after the sun. The incredible promise of Jesus of Nazareth, of our Christ, of our Savior. He came to give us life and what he called the abundant life, life to the full, eternal life. You and I are eternal creatures. It's why we're so justifiably uncomfortable when we talk about death. It is the end of what we know as life. And this is where the Christian community and our journey through this book departs quite significantly from the very cynical views of Koheleth. I've been following the scholarship closely on this book. It's a super, super complicated book. And I spend week in, week out, meditating in this guy's head, which is not a lot of fun, to be honest with you. And I'm fairly convinced that Koheleth, he viewed his world without a view to eternity. That's at the roots of his problem. Koheleth had either greatly diminished, for whatever reason, his view of life after death, Oh, it's cliche. Oh, it's corny. Oh, it's escapist, which is what I hear a lot of modern Christians saying. Or he had just simply abandoned it wholesale. Church has hurt me. I'm out. No such thing as heaven. I'm done. We don't know what happened to him, but probably very similar things that have happened to you happened to him. And I suppose the pastoral call to our church is to not abandon eternal life and living life after the sun right now. We cannot do that. In a world that is completely out of our control and a world completely out of control, as apprentices of Jesus, we cling to the hope of a world wherein every single atom of the universe will be operating in perfect obedience to the control of the king forever and ever. That's our truest hope. That's what you guys realize eternal life will be. Heaven will be every sector of creation existing in perfect obedience to the absolute control of God. Right now, you're in the process of being tested and trained and surrendering of your own volition all the way into eternity. That's what Christianity and spiritual formation is in this life. One surrender after another, obeying by faith. 
In a world of happenstance and apparent chance, what we do is we cling to the promises of our God who said, I am there and I am in control. There is reward and recompense for every single thing we experience and see in this life. There will be something in the afterlife that's equal to it. And so the abundant eternal life that Jesus promised is being lived by you right now. We're living right now in the midst of the dumpster fires of uncontrollability around us. We live life after the sun while still under the sun. That is the great joy of Christianity. And it is not cliche, and it is not cheesy, and it is certainly not escapist. It is the opposite of escapist to look forward to a future that is certainly going to consume all of creation That is empowering and transforming. It is what every true Christian has held on to throughout history, whether kissing the stake upon which they are about to be burned or being crowned rulers of a particular culture and community. No matter where a Christian has found themselves, true Christians have always said, this is not my world. This is not the place where this all lands. This isn't the end of everything. If it is, I'm with Koheleth. Cynical, jaded, done, out. But because it's not, I'm going to put all my effort into it, resting as a state of existence, resiliently doing with all my heart, mind, strength, and soul for the glory of the King who came and was crucified for me and has promised me this abundant life right now. This world is not as it should be because of sin and death and spiritual evil. This is why we wake up And our primary plan is to long for Jesus' literal physical return. Try that tomorrow. Plan bullet point A. Pray for Jesus to return today and believe it. And want it more than I want my plan to be fulfilled today. It really does shift your whole perspective on the universe. Living in and with that hope is beginning to break in the future right now. Then you go into your workplaces and into your classrooms. You're still suffering. You're still anxious. You're still, the flesh is still wanting to war for control over the world. But you go into that classroom going, what if he returned right now? Did I pray for my professor? Did I pray for my friend? Did I love? Did I catch their eye color? Was I taken aback by the flavor of chocolate and peanut butter and milk in a bowl? Did I miss anything? It will help you to attune your focus and your awareness. The promise of life after life under the sun while living under the sun, it is the crux of Christianity. This is the crux of Christianity. It's a really big deal. And what we learn from Koheleth is the damage that is done to a soul, the cynicism that is birthed when we neglect the fact that the Son of God came, died, resurrected, and has given you a resurrected life. And so learn to rest there tomorrow. When your plans are in total rubble, I will resurrect. (laughs) And let build resilience into your life. Will you and I, as we come to communion, ever be able to control this world? Of course not. Of course not. And that is why the Creator King came to rescue us from this uncontrollability of the world. Will we have control in the kingdom of God? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We are not the Creator, and we are not the King. Heaven will be heaven because the king will have control of you and me and our hearts and the universe. That's what makes heaven, heaven on earth. And that's the gift that Jesus offers each of you this morning by faith. He offered this to Koheleth through Torah, wisdom writings, and prophets, these little hints of a Messiah, a savior, a creator king who would come and take control of the universe, not by force, but by absorbing the wrong and the uncontrollability of the world into himself on the cross. The Christian community has been bought by this creator king, and he demands absolute control over you. Much of our anxiety as Christians is because we refuse to release control to the king who has purchased us. 
we are his. We were bought with his blood on the cross. And he has secured for us this eternal life by his resurrection. The war for the king is over. It's over. So we wake up, plan A, come back, Lord Jesus. Plan B, what do you want me to do in you and for you today? Dumpster fire, you'll take care of it. Dumpster fire, you'll take care of it. Dumpster fire, you'll take care of it. What is your plan today? How do you know it? You have a Bible on your lap. You're meditating. You're at group on Tuesday night or Wednesday night asking the fellowship of the saints, the sweet counsel of the church, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Bear this burden with me. Would you all just stand with me, please, and take a deep breath? war is over. And so we'll come to communion this morning and read our liturgy. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments.